Um, as you look to Psalm 46 this morning, uh, before we get into the text, um, I just want to say something um, just pastorally and publicly this morning uh, to you. Uh, as, I get, as I get older, the older I get, um, and the more little aches and pains I start to experience, the more I've kind of researched things on the web and tried to figure out what's going on in my body. Um, and what I've discovered is that there's oftentimes those little nagging aches and pains that are related to muscle imbalances, where you got the muscle that's supposed to be pulling is pulling harder than the muscle that's supposed to be pushing. And so you got those things that are kind of working at times against each other, and so it's causing some aches and pains because there's an imbalance there in the body. And I just want to say publicly to you guys this morning that I've begun to recognize in these last several weeks uh, that my preaching here in the history of our church has been imbalanced. Um, There's basically two kinds of messages. There's messages that you can stand before God's people and open the Bible and say, come and die, right? Come and die, come and give up, come and sacrifice, come and serve, come and die. Jesus calls us to that. But there's also messages uh, that you stand before God's people and open God's word and say, come and live, Come and live, come and enjoy the presence of God, come and feast on him, come and rest from all of your labor. And in the history of Redeemer, I've been, uh, uh, the come and die messages have gotten a lot of airtime here. They've gotten a lot of airtime. Uh, but the come and live messages haven't received enough airtime. And I've begun to recognize that in these last several weeks. And I just want to say publicly as your pastor, I want to thank you for your patience. I want to thank you for your grace. Uh, extending that to me. And I want to just say, I, I've got to become better at the come and live messages. Uh, and that's my, I, I hope to do so. Now, the come and die messages will still get airtime here at Redeemer uh, because we live in suburban Dallas in the relative lap of ease and comfort for many of us. Um, and we need to hear Jesus' words whenever he looks at his disciples and he says, if you want to come after me and follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You've got to come and die. I think we, I need to hear those messages often, and I think that most of us in this room need to hear those messages as well. But Jesus also says to those who are burdened, and to those who are weary, and to those who are hurting, and to those who are struggling, who might walk in these doors, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and find rest. And find rest. Come and live. Come and enjoy. Come and savor. Come and be refreshed by God. And so my, my, my desire, my hope, and my, I'm, I'm working and laboring to try and become better at saying, come and live. And that's what I want to do this morning from Psalm 46. And so if you've got a text, go ahead and turn there. You can follow along as we read it together. Psalm 46 begins in verse 1. The psalmist writes these words, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore... We will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still 
and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We said several weeks ago when we started this series in Worship and Wisdom as we began to look at some of the Psalms, that the psalmists in their day and time, they were inhaling reality and exhaling theology. And so they're inhaling everything that's taking place around them and even within them, and they're exhaling, they're breathing out truths about who God is in the face of the reality that they're experiencing. And one of the realities that they were inhaling or breathing in in their day in time was the reality of suffering and pain and distress. And listen, we inhale that reality as well, don't we? It's a part of our world too. As Isaac Watts wrote back in the early 1700s in the hymn that we read, the beginning of the service, he spoke of, or he talks about how at times we feel as if there are storms of deep distress that are invading our lives. They're invading, like an enemy army coming against us to lay siege against our very souls. And some of us know what that is like. We know what it's like to have an army come against us, to feel like there are troops that are, that are building ramparts and battering rams to come against our very hearts and souls. Some of us know what it's like to have your supervisor walk in your office, and along with the HR director, we've experienced this recently, and just say, your position's being eliminated. You need to find other pla another place of employment, and a storm of deep distress invades your soul. Some of us know what it's like to get a 2 a.m. phone call and have a storm of deep distress that invades and lays siege against you. We know what it's like to watch the news, right? Anybody watch the news lately? Or <laughs> uh, read um, uh, online blogs or news feeds on, through your social media channels. You see everything unfolding in the world around us and you know what it's like to have a storm of deep distress invade some of us may know literally what it's like to have a storm of deep distress invade as you hid in an in, the most interior room of your home, right? As a storm swirls and the winds roar outside the windows or as you evacuate low-lying areas because floodwaters are coming up. Several, several years ago, whenever Hurricane Rita came through South Louisiana, my family had to evacuate because of the massive storm surge that was heading in from the Gulf. We know what it's like at times to have these storms of deep distress, to have divorce papers served to you and feel that arise in your heart that somebody's attack, there's an attack coming against you. Or to find those text messages and those emails and those websites that your spouse has visited and sent and received that you knew nothing of and have a storm of deep distress invade. Some of you students, you know what it's like to have a storm of deep distress invade your life because the attention and affection that you're longing for and looking for from your parents is absent and there's a gaping void in your life and there's all kinds of distress that swirls around because of it or to get an unexpected diagnosis. We, we know what it's like to have these storms of deep distress invade. And when the storms of deep distress invade, the question for you and I is this, where will you turn? Where will you look? To whom will you run? Where will you go? When the flaming arrows fall on your heart and when the mortar shells burst in your mind and the enemy army is laying siege against your soul, where will you turn? 
And the psalmist helps us with this. He's inhaling the similar realities to what we're inhaling, but what he exhales here in the psalm is a theology, truths about who God is and where God is that provide shelter, that provide a sense of security in the midst of the distress. Like many of the other psalms, this psalm is a song, right? In in fact, in the textual note up above the, the, the text, when it says, who wrote it? it, at the very end of that little textual note there, it says, a song. In other words, it was a part of ancient Israel's hymnal. When they opened up their hymnal, Psalm 46 is staring them in the face, and they sang this song to remind them of the only certain and sure place to turn whenever the storms of deep distress invade, and when the enemy lays siege. And so this morning, what I want us to do is exhale the theology of this psalm because we've been inhaling reality for quite some time. You with me? I'm gonna exhale the theology of this psalm. What does the psalmist say? Listen to the first thing that he says. If we're gonna stand against the enemy's attacks, he says you have to understand that God is our refuge. That God is our refuge. And a refuge is essentially a place of shelter. It's a place of shelter. In verse one, the text tells us that God is our refuge and strength, which is probably a poetic way of the psalmist saying this, of saying that God is a strong refuge. That God is a strong refuge. In verses seven and 11, the psalmist celebrates the fact that God, the God of Jacob, the God of covenant, the God who made promises to their forefathers is a fortress. He's a citadel, he is a castle that is situated upon a cliff. And no matter how high the waters surge, they will never breach the walls. And no matter how hard the waves crash, they will never crush the castle. They will never crush this refuge and this fortress. God will never develop stress cracks. He will never be crushed under the crashing waves, the repeated battering of the ram, or the repeated mortar fire that burst and is raining down on the roof. Even though the waves crash, they will not crush, overtake, or overthrow this safe place of shelter. He says God is a refuge. He is a fortress. He is strong. He is strong. Essentially, think about it this way. God, the psalmist says, is a safe room. He is a safe room. Listen, I, I don't know about you, but I, I know that in our, in our home, whenever, during the springtime in particular, whenever you're watching the news or you're watching your favorite show and they break in with news coverage, right, because there's this dry line building out to the west and you see all of this, this red and yellow activity on the radar and it begins to move in our direction and always looking for the hooks, right? Always looking for those little hooks in the radar in, the, in, the, in, the, in those bands of storms because those are indications there may be a tornado forming there. And so what do they do, right? Whether you're watching Fox, whether you're watching CBS, NBC, CB, you know, any, of those, any of those local affiliates, they're always going to say, if you live in this area where this hook is forming, you need to move where? To the most interior room of your home, away from windows and exterior walls. And you need to bunker down there because this is about to move, it's about to get real. It's about to move in your direction. The storm is about to hit. So move into the most interior room in your home, your safe room, right? Now most of us in our, in our homes in suburban Dallas, we may not have like steel barricaded safe rooms that are underground full of ammunition and whiskey. Some of you may, I have suspicions. But listen, most of us probably don't, but we have that interior room, right, where we're gonna go to ride out that storm. And what the psalmist is saying is this, that God is a safe room, that he is the most interior room. 
He is the only place to ride out and weather the distress that you find invading your soul. He is a refuge. He is a fortress. He is strong. He is he will endure. And listen, I want you to notice as well that the text doesn't say that God is a refuge. What does it say? He's our refuge. Listen, the psalmist doesn't have just a category in his mind for God being a refuge, but he actually has the experience in his heart of what it is to run to him in the midst of distress. It's a personal aspect to this refuge that God is for us. See, it's not enough to have a category in your mind to say God is a refuge. Yes, I get that intellectually and I can give assent to that and I can affirm that. But the question is, whenever storms of deep distress invade, do you make him, do you make him your refuge? Not just that he is a refuge, but you make him your refuge so that you run to him and you come into the shelter of his wings and you know that he is your safe room. See, part of what it is to be a Christian is not just to have an intellectual category for God in our heads, but to actually have personal encounters and experiences with God in which we throw the weight of our life and our trust upon him. It's not just going, yes, I believe God exists and I believe that he might be a refuge for some people. The, the people who are weaker than I am who need him. No. The psalmist says he's our, it's a, there's a personal aspect to it. And the psalmist says, I want you to sing this song. I want you to be able to sing this song from the depths of your heart that you would have this encounter and this experience with God that whenever distress invades, that you would run to him and not from him. But listen, some of us in this room, or whether you're in earshot of the voice and listen to this podcast, listen, if, if you... Some of us do not, cannot, we cannot sing this song because though we affirm God to be a refuge, we have not made him our refuge. And whenever distress invades our lives, we turn to something or someone else that we might believe to be a more sufficient and stronger shelter. He's a refuge, but he's not your refuge. You might affirm that God is a strong refuge, but you act as if your family is a more sufficient refuge for you in your distress. But let me ask you this question. What if the distress that invades your life is the unraveling of your family? Where are you going to go then? Or you may affirm that God is a strong refuge, but you act as if your job and your vocation is a more sufficient shelter in your distress. But what if the distress that invades your life is the loss of your job? Some of you feel pretty secure because you've been good with your finances and you've stockpiled money away and you've made plans and preparations. But what if the distress that invades your life is the crashing of the stock market and all of your 401k gets wiped out? Where do you go then? Some of us affirm that God is a refuge, but we act as if food is a refuge. Pleasurable experiences are a refuge for us. Listen, a part, a part of the obesity epidemic in our nation, right, is, let me, let me just, before I say this, there are physiological issues that some people wrestle with. I get that. And they're, over, they're, they're overweight, and they're trying, and they're working, they're taking medication, they're, they're like sweating in the sauna every day, they're trying to work out and lose weight, but they're fighting against physiological issues and the way their body is working against them. But for others, there's a part of the obesity epidemic in our nation 
that exists because for some, they're taking shelter under boneless chicken wings drizzled in honey barbecue sauce as opposed to sheltering under this God who is their refuge. And so they eat comfort food to bring them comfort as opposed to seeking shelter under the wings of the Almighty. May affirm that God is a refuge, but do we act as if he is a refuge when distress invades? We may affirm that God is a refuge, but we act as if, if fantasy and pornography are a more sufficient shelter whenever things get rocky in our lives. And we run to that. What are you running to? The text tells us God is our refuge. But what makes him a more sufficient refuge than any of these other things that we could find refuge in? And there's two things in the text I want to show you this morning and invite you to come and live. Listen to what the psalmist says. First of all, he says that God is a better, stronger refuge, first of all, because of his power. Because of his power. The psalmist says God is powerful to still the roaring seas and the raging nations. In verse 10, we find God commanding creation and the nations to be still. He says, be still and know that I am God. Now this verse has been hijacked by quite a few event planners, right, for themes for their retreats, right, or it's been hijacked by quite a few mystics who want to encourage you to close your Bible and go out in the woods and sit and look up to the trees and open your mind and let God speak, Right, be still, it's been hijacked, but that's not what this psalm is teaching, that's not what this text is saying. I want you to look at the context in which it is written. It's also not first a comfort to those of us who are in distress or afflicted, but it's first of all a rebuke and a command to everything that is roaring and everything that is raging, all the chaos that is erupting and all the distress that is invading this world. God rebukes it and he says, be still. Be still. In verses two and three, we see that creation, in particular the seas, are roaring and raging. As the psalmist says, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then in verse six, he says, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. And God steps back and he looks at everything in creation that is roaring and everything among the nations that is raging and God speaks a word of command and he says, be still. Be still. He says to the seas, seas, no matter how high you rise and no matter how hard you crash, I am God, you are not. I will be exalted among the earth, you you be still. And he looks at all the nations and all the kingdoms of the earth and all the princes and all the kings and all the presidents and all the rulers and he says, nations, no matter how much, how, how power hungry and greedy you are to try and overthrow and overcome and so you fight wars and you overthrow kingdoms, no matter how high you rise on the face of this earth, I am the one who is exalted among the nations. I am God. There is no equal to me. You be still. That's what the psalmist is saying in verse 10. That's the words that are coming out of God's mouth as he rebukes the roaring creation and the raging nations to say, I am unrivaled and unparalleled and above all and everything. 
Now listen, have you ever tried that? <laughs> Those of you who are parents, have you ever walked into your living room and seen kids just everywhere, right? You got like seven kids from the neighborhood. You don't even know who one of them is. And they're just kind of all playing there in the living room. There's toys everywhere, right? It's just utter chaos is erupting in your home. And you walk in and you survey the landscape and you go, be still. How'd that work out for you? Those of you who are teachers, you ever walked into your classroom, right, and come back from, you know, the kids are coming back from recess or whatever it is they've been out to, and they come back in, and you stand up in front of the class, and they're all chattering and going on, and there's kids throwing airplanes and picking boogers and flicking them at each other, right, and you say, be still. How'd that work out for you? Right, have you ever tried that? If you have, then your experience teaches you that the word of your command and your rebuke is not the same as God's word of command and his rebuke. You and I do not have the power that God has associated with the words that roll off of his tongue. That God is unrivaled, he is unparalleled, there is none who compares to him. There is no one like him. And because of his power, because of the certainty of his commands, because of everything that he is and everything that he says and everything that he does, the psalmist says, he is a refuge. He is a fortress. There is no one who will overtake him or overthrow him. So run to him, church. Run to him in the midst of your distress. Find refuge in him. And what you will find is that when you do, that the same God who has the power to calm the roaring seas and still the raging nations has the power to calm and still your raging heart. The same God And you you can't explain it. You can't purchase it. Right? It doesn't come in a little dispenser. You can sit on your kitchen counter and pump it out whenever you need it. But you know that as you run to him, you can't categorize it or chart it. But the same God who's able to still everything that's roaring and raging is able to still your soul because of his power. But notice also, it's not only because of his power, but also because of his presence. Also because of his presence. And God is present in the midst of all this raging and roaring. In fact, verse 1 in the text teaches us that God is not only present, present help in trouble, but a very present, an exceedingly present help in our trouble. And that word present literally means this, to be found. To be found. In other words, God is able to be found in the foam You ever been to the ocean and seen the waves crashing against the shore as they bang against the rocks and all the foam sprays off of them? You ever seen that before? I guess not. You're just all staring at me blankly. But that's what happens. Take my word for it if you hadn't seen it, right? Foam begins to billow off of the rocks as the waves crash against them. And the psalmist says God is to be found most in the midst of the foam. He's very present exceedingly present, abundantly present in the midst of your trouble. That's where you find God, in the midst of the foam. In fact, 
In fact, the text goes on in verses 7 and 11 again to say that the, that the Lord of hosts is with us. Now that word host literally means armies. We sang the song earlier, the God of angels armies is by my side in the midst of all of the distress and all the chaos. He is present, he is not absent. Many of us think that whenever distress has invaded our lives that God has fallen back. But actually God is most actively present in the midst of the greatest catastrophes, chaos, distress and difficulty. That's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying because of his presence that he is a sure and certain refuge. The God who commands the angelic armies, the Lord of hosts is with you. Now I don't know about you, but whenever you read the Bible and you see angels showing up in different places, right, it's a little bit different than what we conceive of with regards to angelic beings in our day and time. Many of us kind of think to Charmin toilet paper when we think of angels who are kind of floating there on the clouds with a little harp and a diaper, playing a little tune. But when the angels show up in the Bible, they almost always have to lead with this phrase, don't be afraid. Like, I know my presence is intimidating, <laughs> so do not fear. In fact, in, 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 in Joshua chapter 5, as Joshua's preparing to go against Jericho and take the city, as he walks forward and he's by Jericho, and he, in Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, the text says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. <laughs> I love that answer. No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. When Joshua beholds what appears to be to him an angelic presence, who is the commander of the Lord of hosts, who's the commander of the, of the armies of God, the angelic beings of God. Most scholars think that this is probably referring to a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus. And so when Joshua falls on his knees, begins to worship him. He's in awe of him. He's not like a cute, cuddly little dude floating on a, on a cloud with a harp. He's in awe and falls on his face. And then again in 2 Kings, verse chapter 6, whenever the, the, the king of Assyria finds out that it's Elisha who has been receiving revelation from God to kind of thwart the king's purposes, he says, well, go and capture him and bring him to me so we can seize him and do away with him. And so the king of, of Syria sends all of his troops to go and capture uh, Elisha because they find out where he is staying. And so the armies invade at night and they surround the camp of God's, of God's people and whenever the dawn begins to rise, this Elisha's servant looks up to the hills and he sees all of the Syrian army and he is flipping his lid, right? He's losing it. He has, he's, he's, he's petrified. And this is what, this is what how, the, how the text reads in 2 Kings chapter 6. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That the Lord of hosts has sent his armies to fight for his people. 
See, many of us, when we look upon the invading armies that are seeking to lay siege to our soul, we feel like we're all alone in the midst of that time. But God says, I am most present when things are most foamy in your life. And so because of his power and because of his presence, he is a more sufficient refuge than anything else to which you could flee to take shelter. And if you will, there's two things Two things I want to leave you with that will happen. The first one is this. Is that you, you will not have to live in fear any longer. You will not have to live in fear any longer. I want you to look back in verse 2. There's a therefore in verse 2. Connecting the thought of verse 2 back to the thought of verse 1. In other words, the psalmist is saying this. God is our strong refuge and is most found in the foam. Therefore, don't fear when things get foamy. Don't fear when distress lays siege. Don't fear whenever things begin to unravel. Don't fear whenever chaos begins to erupt. Because God is present. Because he is there with you. And you are not alone. Most of us, the times that we find ourselves to be most afraid is whenever we feel most isolated and alone. When we're alone. And so if you think about whenever you're watching a scary movie... Right? And you're sitting on the couch, maybe you're sitting in the movie theater, and right, you're, you're watching a scary movie, and that part comes where the, the music's building and the suspense is building, and all of a sudden, boom, it happens, and you're like, <gasps> what's the first thing that you do? You reach for the person next to you, don't you? But they're just as terrified as you are, so I don't know what good they're going to do. <laughs> When we find ourselves in those moments when, we've, when we're most terrified because we most feel alone, we want someone there with us. Or, or times whenever we have to go in and we, we walking into a new experience or meeting new people, right? Some of you have been invited to things before and you're like, man, I, I don't even want to go because I'm kind of like a, uh, just an introvert. I just want to be to my, keep to myself and so I want to go meet new people. And so what do you do? You invite somebody to come with you, don't you? Why? Because you don't want to be alone. And if you're not alone, then there is no reason that you have to be afraid. There is no reason that you have to fear because God is with you. Listen, let me apply this a little bit this morning. If you are a Christian here this morning who is living in fear right now because of the things that you see unfolding on the political and national landscape in our nation, it has, it, it, it has less to do with the state of our union and has more to do with the source of your refuge. Listen, I've been just as much disheartened and disenchanted as you guys have been watching everything unfold. But listen, there is no candidate, there is no congressman, there is no political party, and there is no platform whose wings are as sturdy and sure as the Lord of hosts. If you are living in fear because of the things that you see swirling and the raging that you see going on within our nation, it has less to do with the state of our union and more to do with the source of your refuge. Psalm 146 says this, put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no, solution, no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. <laughs> you do not have to live in fear. 
And if you're not going to live in fear, you've got to learn to cultivate an awareness of God's presence with you in the midst of your distress. Let me ask you a question. Whenever distress fades, what's bigger and bolder in your eyes? The problem or the presence of God? What's bigger and bolder in your eyes? The problem or the presence of God? You wake up every morning and saying, God is in the foam. And the second thing that it will produce if you will run to him as your refuge is this. It's not only do you not have to live in fear any longer, but you can now live with joy and peace. Look at what the psalmist says in verse four. In verse four he says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. Listen, what he's referring to here in the psalm is is Jerusalem. But there's no river that runs through Jerusalem. There's no major river or stream that runs through Jerusalem. And so what the psalmist is referring to is not a physical body of water. But God is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of her. And because of that, she will have joy and make it, her heart will be glad and she will have peace. See, in the ancient world, the, the chaotic, frothy, foamy seas were a, a symbol of chaos and distress. But the river was a symbol of life and peace. And the psalmist is saying, God is the river in the midst of his people, in the midst of that city. And be, no matter what's raging around her, Within her, there will be joy. Her heart will be glad. Within her, there will be peace. She will not be shaken. She will be secure. And if you will run to him as your refuge, you will cultivate an awareness of God that he is bigger and bolder in your eyes than your problem and your distress. If you will, listen, here's, here's a little, something very practical. What, what most of us do whenever distress invades, and we seek peace this way, and we seek joy this way, is we turn our minds off, and we power down. <laughs> but what the psalmist teaches us is whenever distress invades, we have to turn our minds on, and we have to think through the implications of our theology and apply them to our reality. Look what verse 2 says again. Therefore. That's an implication, isn't it? This is true, so therefore. And the same is true for you and I. We have to turn our minds on, begin to think through the fact that God is the commander of an angelic army that is by my side day and night in the midst of my distress. You begin to exhale that theology in the face of your reality in the same way the psalmist does. And that is what it means to run to God as your refuge. It may not mean that you have this this emotional experience where you break down at the altar and you cry a bucket of tears and then you dump it out and cry some more. But what it is is that you turn your mind on And you think through all the implications that God is so powerful that a word of his voice will still everything, the most violent earthquake and the most violent revolution, that the word of his voice will still everything, including my raging heart and soul. You turn your mind on, you begin to think through that. You begin to exhale that theology. Is this your song? 
Is this your song? I hope it would be. But for some of you and for myself at times, I'm afraid that it's not. And for some of us, we don't run to him, perhaps because we feel like we've been betrayed by him. See, some of us in here, like, man, I have poured out my heart and my life. I've made sacrifices. I've given. I've served. And God, where's the return? We feel betrayed by him. Samuel Rutherford was a Puritan pastor. He, he writes these incredibly insightful words. Because some of us in the room this morning, you feel like God is a refuge for somebody has not been for me because he's betrayed me. I want you to listen to what Rutherford said. He said, why do you complain of waters going over your soul and that the smoke of the terrors of a wrathful Lord almost suffocate you and bring you to death's brink? I know that the fault is in your eyes, not in him. It is not the rock that flees and moves, but the green sailor. If you sense If your sins and apprehension are made judge of his love, there is a graven image made presently, even a changed God and a foe God who was once a friend God. What he's saying is this, the rock never moves. The rock stays, no matter how many waves crash over it, the rock never moves. He says, the one that moves is the green sailor. The one who looks at the storm and, 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 and through their short time on earth and through their limited perspective they see it as God coming against them not God being for them to try and root out all the other competing sources of refuge that they may flee to in the midst of their distress but we feel like God has betrayed us we feel like we can't run to him and some of you are right there this morning but the question that I would leave you with if that's where you are is this What if God's love and care for you have never changed, but your apprehension and perception of it has? What if it's not him that has changed, but your lenses? And then some of us don't run to him in the midst of our distress because we don't feel like we're worthy. We don't feel like we deserve to find refuge in him. We don't feel like we deserve to find shelter in him. Let me just go ahead and say this. You know, the truth is, you don't. You didn't expect to hear that, did you? But the truth is, I don't either. The truth is, none of us do. The truth is, is that there's only ever been one person, there's only ever been one person who was worthy to sing this song. And he grew up singing that song as he opened the hymn of ancient Israel, and he sang this song, God is my rock, God is my refuge. And the truth is, there's only been one person who's ever been worthy to sing this song, but the truth is, is that this song, for a moment, was ripped off of his lips and off of his tongue so that you and I, we could sing it forever. We could sing it forever. See, in John chapter 12, in John chapter 12, Jesus says, now my soul is greatly, what? Troubled. Troubled. And even though the New Testament and Old Testament are written in different languages, in Hebrew and Greek, respectively, 
There was a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which 70 scholars got together and they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek New Testament. And everywhere that the, that the Greek, or, or in Psalm, I'm sorry, in Psalm 46, where that word, um, God's a very present help in trouble, that when the, when the scholars came across that word in Hebrew, they translated it with this Greek word in John chapter 12, troubled. Troubled. And so, what, in other words, when Jesus says, my, my, my soul is greatly troubled, what he's saying is, my soul is filled with angst and anxiety and is frothing and foaming. And waves are crashing over me. And inevitably, they would crush him. They would crush him. Jesus would have this song ripped off of his tongue as the waves rose to such a degree that they breached the walls and they flooded the courtyards of his life. And Jesus says, my soul is troubled. Why? Because his hour is upon him and his hour was the time in which he would go to the cross and he would suffer in our place and he would feel the wrath of God poured out upon him as he suffered for our sins. So that Jesus experienced this trouble in our place and for us so that we could sing this song forever. And so that he could, like in John chapter 7, that he could pour out streams of living water as the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. So that now, when your heart is wrung by distress, that what would run out be joy and peace because the Holy Spirit is producing those in you as the army invades. He is a refuge, church. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you've never taken refuge, you've never taken refuge in this God who is your Savior and substitute whose life was overrun with trouble so that you could sing this song and find peace. I invite you to come and live. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you've been running to other sources of refuge in the midst of your distress, I invite you, come and live. This morning we're gonna sing together and celebrate the fact that this God is our refuge that he is our salvation, that he is our rock, that he is secure and powerful, that he is present in the midst of this. All of our family drama, all of our vocational drama, all of our personal drama, all of the storms of distress of this life, that God cannot be shaken. I'm gonna pray for us to that end, that we would trust that, believe that, and respond in praise. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we thank you for your grace. We know that none of us in this room, God, deserves or is worthy to sing this song. But God, the only one who was worthy to sing it had it ripped off of his tongue and lips so that we could sing it forever. Father, I know that there are men and women in this room this morning who are in an hour of need. They're in the, in the midnight hour. They're in the midst of distress right now. God, would you give them grace to turn from other sources of refuge and to flee, to flee to your son so that when their heart is wrung, joy and peace come out, 
because you are there with them and you are powerful to still their hearts. May we no longer be content with understanding that God is a refuge, that you are a refuge, but may we make you our refuge by turning our mind on, thinking through the implications of our theology and exhaling those things in the face of our reality. And may we do that in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name.